Hey gang, welcome back to Wandering Wellness. Uh, very special guest here today alongside myself, Finn and Lydia, your usuals. Patrick Halford, thanks for coming on. Uh, my absolute pleasure. I love you guys. And uh, it was fantastic coming to Ireland a few weeks ago. Um, we want to spread the love, spread the education, and uh, don't spread the diseases, because most of the things we're suffering from, we really don't need to suffer from if we just knew what to eat and how to live. I think that was the big takeaway for everybody. It was like, it was a reminder, and for me included, you know, Obviously, my knowledge isn't as a, at your level, but in, we've been in this industry for a long time and you can get lost in the weeds a little bit. And mm -hmm. it was great. it's great to bring some of the fundamentals back to real brass tacks. And so things that get missed in our recommendations often these days are like B-complex vitamins. You know, it doesn't have to be alpha GPC and friggin' like all the world of like nootropics, like these things, these fundamental things that have been around for, you know, mm -hmm. decades now those things, there's still new research coming out in terms of their ability to prevent the onset of major disease, right? Absolutely true. And Alzheimer's is such a classic example of a, a mess and how we are not dealing with it properly. Mm. So yeah, so talk to us about that maybe, like uh, particularly when we're talking, because one of the things that we talk about a lot is like how like lung cancer takes like 30 years to develop, Alzheimer's mm -hmm. takes like 30 or 40 years to develop, like what are the things that people are missing obviously in their diet lifestyle stuff and what are the things that you find yourself coming up against and and and, and what are the things that the the interventions that you sort of propose and the sort of studies that you're reading about it as well i suppose okay well i mean so first to give you the timeline um the i mean alzheimer's is about two-thirds of dementia so if a person is significantly losing their ability to function cognitively memory etc losing things all the time forgetting names etc um the first stage of that is called mild cognitive impairment and already if you can measure mild cognitive impairment you're a long way along the track already it's not that mild mm -hmm. uh, if you and that's done on a, on a test of your memory and uh, if you do really badly on that test you go into the scale of dementia so you can be diagnosed with dementia just from a cognitive function test now, Alzheimer's, which is about two thirds of dementia, is can only be diagnosed by the addition of a brain scan because there's a central part of the brain, it's called the medial temporal lobe, which shrinks. So Alzheimer's is really the shrinkage. And I mean, we can say in mild cognitive impairment, you know, you've got uh, maybe 1% shrinkage and Alzheimer's, you've got 3% shrinkage, so increased shrinkage. So that's the thing. But actually, of that dementia, you know, if two thirds of it is Alzheimer's, the next big chunk is what we call vascular dementia, i.e. you've got problems with your blood vessels, you know, feeding into the brain. And in truth, all the same risk factors, drivers for Alzheimer's are there for vascular dementia. So everything I'm going to say relates to both. So you kind of end up with about 80% of all dementia is, you know, what we can talk about. Then in terms of the so origin, I mean, you know, in diabetes, we used to have adult onset and child onset, but it was very, very hard to sell, uh, you know, to sell drugs by calling it that. So they changed the name to, to um, the child onset was insulin dependent. <clears throat> so they stopped calling it insulin dependent, non-insulin dependent, and started calling it type one and type two. And type two adult onset diabetes, the youngest age of diagnosis is now three. So adult onset diabetes is now occurring in three-year-olds. The youngest age of a dementia diagnosis is 30. In studies that my colleagues have done in teenagers, 
um, they are already seeing shrinkage of that central part of the brain in adolescence and decreases in cognitive function in adolescents who are eating too much sugar, carbs, and you know, doing the wrong thing. And then when you run a, um, our charity, foodforthebrain.org, have a validated online free cognitive function test that everyone can do. And the reason we strongly recommend it is you can pick up subtle changes uh, about 30 to 40 years before a diagnosis. Wow. So really anyone in their 40s or 50s should start to be taking this seriously. Now, really, the things that we, we're going to talk about a bit more, and there are a few unique things with Alzheimer's, but, you know, blood sugar and too many carbs and not enough fruit and veg, antioxidants, polyphenols, omega-3, not enough brain fats, vitamin D, active body, active mind, you know, stress, sleep, you know, well, all of these are drivers and we can kind of break those down. Um, so... The, the point is that really Alzheimer's is the end of the cycle. So first, you know, you tend to gain weight and then get diabetes or get heart disease, um, then get arthritis, which is not a wear and tear disease. It's a metabolic disease. And ultimately, you know, you get dementia. So mm -hmm. it's just, you know, part of that progression. And I think we can say it's got to be, you know, 30, 40, 50 years in the coming, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm. that's kind of it the big problem is if you wait too late and there are a lot of people who for example don't want to do our online cognitive function test and if you say why not they say i'm scared uh you know i i don't want to know and um and the point is if you wait too late uh, till you're at that point where you've got holes in your brain because that's what alzheimer's is you're not gonna get those holes back so mm. the sooner you start the better but even in people with very early stage Alzheimer's, we are seeing, you know, some major improvements. So it, it's not true to say it's never too late. It is sometimes too late, uh, but you can still go quite far along this path and, uh, you know, and, and get some recovery. I honestly believe the human body is programmed, designed and willing and able uh, to create health. It's there mm. to do it. And our job is simply to create the right circumstances to allow i mean don't you find it amazing you know if i cut my finger or burn my finger or anything you know you do to your body um you know you bash into something sprain something etc just leave it and it 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 recovers so it's got this incredible intelligence and the trouble is do we have the intelligence to understand what it actually needs yeah and so patrick are you saying that it's not the case that suddenly Alzheimer's and dementia has just like become much worse because it's some kind of a disease. You're saying that it's like the lifestyle that people are living now, the modern lifestyle is leading people towards having more dementia and more Alzheimer's. Yeah, totally. yeah, absolutely. I mean, the point is for every disease that exists, there's a country that doesn't have it. Mm. You know, so we, we spend a lot of time, uh, you know, so for example, in Japan, it's better. You know, they have a lot more omega-3. Uh, in India, uh, where a lot of people are vegetarian and lacking B12, it's worse. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so so it's simply a disease that we create. Um, it is a disease that we create. That's the bottom line. And yeah, you know, it's it's going up exponentially uh, because of our diet and lifestyle. But also a little bit of that is because we've got an older population. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah. isn't the important point? Alzheimer's is not a function of age. In other words, 
you do not need in any respect to lose your memory at any point in your life right up to the point that you die that you know there isn't a need for that to occur i mean another example of this is that the average woman in the eu right now uh, is going to spend 14 years of their life at the end of their life unable to climb 10 stairs disabled shocking yeah but if you're fit and you do the right things and you maintain your muscle mass um, Mm. you don't need to be in that category so there is no need to lose memory it's not a i mean i've i've worked with you know genius professors nobel prize winners and all the rest of it and you know who've lived well into their 90s sharp as a razor you know literally right up to the end so you don't Mm. need it's almost assumed now you know, it's just something that you get, you know, and I'm, to make it very clear, because the other big excuse, um, you know, is that it's in the genes, you know, mm-hmm. but of course, this is the same excuse we have with cancer. It's in the genes, which is, you know, completely one of the worst mistakes we've made in cancer. Um, and the, the point is that if you've got a disease that's massive, you know, in the 21st century and barely existed in the 19th century, it obviously isn't the genes mm. because the genes haven't changed in that respect. But in the case of Alzheimer's, and it's important here to know that there are causative genes for things. So there are some causative genes for cancer. And if you inherit those genes, you know, you're going to get that cancer or 80% of people will. And there are causative genes for Alzheimer's, which are called senilin, presenilin, and there's one called AP, APP. And if you have those, then, you know, 50% of your family members will have Alzheimer's early in their 50s, in their 60s. Mm-hmm. So if your family members have developed something in their 80s, that that's not it. Um, okay. And those account for certainly less than 100, probably about one in 200 cases of Alzheimer's. Okay. So certainly 99 out of 100 cases of Alzheimer's are not caused by genes Mm. but then you've got other genes which could predispose you to something under certain circumstances Mm -hmm. and a classic yeah i think you you know you know the apoe4 Mm. Uh, so this is a gene apoe gene and you can have variations of it and if you happen to have the apoe4 variation it will increase your you know if you've got it and uh, and I haven't, it increases your risk of getting Alzheimer's um, by about 4%, something like that. Mm-hmm. It gets massively over-exaggerated because uh, if I sort of give you an example here, um, let's say that uh, my risk for getting Alzheimer's is um, 2% anyway, or low, whatever it is, and yours is 4%. Um, then people mistakenly would say, by having APOE4, you double your chances of getting Alzheimer's. Yeah. Way to scare the pants off people. Exactly. And that's what we call the relative risk, because, you know, these figures are not correct, but it means that your risk is twice mine, but actually both of our risks are very low. And this is one of the problems I think we kind of come up against a lot, isn't it? We're about to actually um, record another podcast with a lady called Megan O'Regan, who's yeah. doing a PhD in narrative medicine, yes. uh, which is brilliant because it's like the first course of its kind to really address the nature of victimhood in terms of the, to- the story we tell ourselves about our predisposition towards disease 
and our ability to get out of that disease by ourselves. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, so the, like, funny thing, the funny thing is like this APOE4, is just, you know, we could have other examples like BRCA for breast cancer and so on. But um, so the interesting thing about APOE4 is, you know, let's say 20% or 30% of people have it. So we have big studies with 100,000 people, 200,000 people all over the world, studies, you know, pouring in. And of course, any decent study um, is going to measure um, APOE4. So we've got studies where the intervention, the change has been diet or the change has been giving B vitamins or the change has been giving omega-3 or whatever it happens to be. And they've all measured APOE4. Uh, so um, I went back to, uh, you know, the big studies that I could find to say, uh, what, you know, in those who changed their diet, um, was there a bigger or lesser improvement in those with APOE4? In those who took B vitamins, bigger or lesser omega and the answer may have absolutely no difference. Mm. So, so you have these, um, if you like, um, you know, these, these genes that sort of increase the probability are like a weak light. And, you know, if you're still doing all the wrong things, they will increase your risk somewhat. But as soon as you shine the strong light of changing things, eating better mm. food, taking appropriate supplements, et cetera, you can't even see the effect it isn't there. So, mm. and the same thing exists with B vitamins. B vitamins um, is vastly underestimated because there is a process in the body uh, which is called methylation. And to give you an idea of this, I mean, there's actually a billion methylation reactions every two seconds, roughly, in your brain and body. So, if you know suddenly the fire alarm goes off, um, you're pumping adrenaline in 0.2 of a second. How do you make adrenaline? By methylation. Or you eat a biscuit and now your body needs to make insulin. How do you make insulin? By methylation. Mm. Uh, or, you know, whatever. Or the sun is shining and you meet someone you love and you're producing serotonin. How do you make it? By methylation. And we hear about genes uh, are not like an on-off switch. You've either got it or you haven't. They're like a dimmer switch. You can turn them up and you can turn them down. So, you know, half of women who have the BRCA gene for breast cancer approximately will get breast cancer and half won't. And we've learned that soya dampens down the BRCA gene, and we know that milk, you know, pushes it up. So um, the the point is, what turns genes on or off, you know, or up or down? And the answer is methylation. Mm. Okay. And how do you know if you're good at methylation or bad at methylation? And the answer ultimately is a blood test called homocysteine. Uh, and if, if you're not doing methylation, your homocysteine level rises in the blood. And why does it rise in the blood? And the answer is, uh, in order to do methylation, you need B vitamins, and specifically vitamin B6, B12, and folate or folic acid, which is what you get in fruit and veg. And there's a bit of zinc and trimethylglycine in another pathway, but, you know, basically B vitamins. And the big problem, and this is unique uh, in a way uh, to Alzheimer's, and this is a big thing that people haven't understood, is that as people get older, their ability to absorb vitamin B12, which by the way is only in animal products, it's only in meat, fish, eggs, or milk, becomes less and less and less. And as a consequence, I mean, I'm 65, and at my age, about every other person, if tested, will be low in B12. Mm. And uh, I think the Tilda study in Ireland, there was a very good study in Ireland. So if you actually measure blood levels of B12, which are not as good as homocysteine, 
because homocysteine actually tells you if the B12 is working. Mm. Right? The blood level is sort of a good indicator, but homocysteine is better. Um, you will find, you know, a large chunk uh, of people have a have an absence of it. If you look at their diet, they're still eating meat, fish, eggs, or milk. So their diet hasn't changed, but their blood level has changed, and their mm. homocysteine has changed, and they're not doing methylation, and that is a major driver of Alzheimer's. And mm -hmm. then the interesting thing about that is you then go, okay, why would I or you know someone my age not be absorbing B12 sufficiently? Another one is. And we don't fully know the answer to that, but it's probably to do with stomach acid. Uh, because stomach acid levels decrease quite dramatically from a 20-year-old to a 60-year-old. And we could get into why, and people haven't really explored this, but I will say that stomach acid, which is actually called betaine hydrochloride, and betaine is beet, so sugar beet. We grow sugar beet, we take the sugar out, we give it to the humans who get fat and sick and addicted, and uh, the animals eat the rest, which is full of what we call trimethylglycine, methyl, methylation. That's what's in beet. So stomach acid is called betaine, uh, which is all to do with methylation and B vitamins. You need B vitamins to make betaine hydrochloride, which is actually, you need zinc to make the hydrochloride bit. So we're not making enough stomach acid. And if we don't make enough stomach acid, we can't absorb B12. And that's why some people have to have injections because they can't absorb it. Mm. And when we have somebody with a raised homocysteine, which is about, once your homocysteine level is above 11, you've got accelerated brain shrinkage. And that's the majority of people over 60. Mm. Um, but, you know, I had, I had, um, I had a, a, a mother and daughter come to one of my lectures many years ago and um, homocysteine and B vitamins and methylation is very strongly connected to strokes. It's a major driver of strokes. And it turned out the mother had had a stroke and uh, the daughter said to the mom, I really think you should have this homocysteine test. And the mom said, I will, if you will. So they both had it. And remember above 11, you have accelerated brain shrinkage. And uh, the mother's level was six which is perfect. I mean, it's optimal, absolutely great. So her stroke had nothing to do with methylation. The daughter's level was 23. Whoa. And that's the average of about a 90 something year old, you know? And um, uh, so, so you don't know, that's the point. And actually in her case, she'd had a car accident three years previous. And ever since then, I had chronic fatigue syndrome and uh, had this very high methylation. And we gave her the B vitamins. And as you know, in the health food shops, you can actually get supplements specifically designed to normalize homocysteine. I have one in my range. It's called Connect. Solgar have one called Homocysteine Modulators. Higher Nature have one called H-Factor and so on. And I've formulated most of these for the companies because, you know, they come to me to know what actually works. And the daughter took this and within a month, she had no chronic fatigue. Mm. You know? So the point is, you don't know. Uh, your B12 status just from your food, you know, ultimately you have to attest. So then, you know, to kind of open up the story of the conversation, um, uh, Professor David Smith, who was uh, vice dean of Oxford Medical School, and it was his group who had discovered what Alzheimer's was and developed the brain scan that is done of the central area of the brain, the medial temporal lobe. Sometimes the hippocampus is there, so mm -hmm. not the hippopotamus, but the hippocampus. They developed that. They found lots of homocysteine mm. in Alzheimer's brains 
They then did a randomized placebo control trial in 2010, um, taking people over 70 with the first stages of memory problems, gave them either high dose B vitamins. And this is important. They didn't give the RDA, which is the ridiculous dietary arbitrary of B12, which is 1.5 microgram. They gave 500 microgram. So they're giving hundreds of times higher than the amount that we are recommended to have, not because you need that much. So I don't want to inject 500. It's not dangerous, by the way, but no need, but because people absorb it poorly. So they gave B6 folate and 500 microgram B12 or placebo, end of the year, 53% less brain shrinkage in the group on the vitamins. Mm. You know, so you're is, saying you're saying that uh, oral dose B12 is better absorbed than the injection? No, I'm saying that if you most most people who are malabsorbing B12 can mm. achieve good B12 status by supplementing but it has to be a high dose to get a little more through. That's the yeah. point. Yeah. There are some people where even their malabsorption is so bad that they have to inject mm. straight mm. into the bloodstream. Okay, so you do see a, a difference in terms of uptake. So if somebody is on injections, it is a, there's a, usually a good guidance behind that, you think? Like as opposed to taking the oral dose, or what would you say about that? Well, I mean, the first thing to know is if someone says to me, how do I know if I'm getting enough B vitamins? I say, don't ask me, ask your body. You measure the homocysteine and your level is six, seven, eight, you know, something like that. Then whatever you're doing is working fine. And uh, if it's high, then take the supplemental, you know, B12 and folate and B6. Measure again in a month or two. It doesn't take long to come down. And if it hasn't, come down and you know if you throw all the b12 you can down and it doesn't come down you need injections you yeah. know that's the way it goes now the problem with injections b12 most b vitamins do not store but b12 does store in the liver to an extent so the problem on the nhs is that the um the rule is that you get a shot every three months now, for some people, that's enough, but for some people, they need it every month, and some people even need it every two weeks. So it's very variable. So the point is, and it's, it's a, this is a really, really important point, the, the, the correct or optimal amount of a nutrient is very simply what relieves the symptoms. <laughs> so we've got into this crazy notion that we're all the same, and we all need just one amount of a vitamin. So, you know, classic example, what's the optimal dose of vitamin C? Well, if you've got a cold, you know, what relieves the symptoms is at least eight grams a day. You know, the RDA of whatever it is, 80 milligrams, will not have any effect on the relief of that symptom. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you know, if you've got sort of terrible muscle cramps and all the rest of it, magnesium helps. And will 50 milligrams of magnesium do it? No. Will 500 milligrams of magnesium do it? Yes. So the optimal intake of a nutrient is very simply whatever relieves the symptoms for an individual in whatever set of circumstances they're in. So can you explain to us just for a second, because this is kind of pairing back a little bit, but I think it's an important part of this to like, why are RDAs still considered a thing? Why are they on the back of supplements for people out there? So when they're seeing, you know, some supplements, they're going, Jesus, that's two and a half thousand percent of the RDA. I mean, that's that yeah, yeah. dangerous. Like, can you explain to us a little bit about why people need to, you know, yeah, get, in, get on board with that? 
there's sort of um you know there's there's two there's kind of the supposed science story and there's a political story the science story is that when vitamins were discovered if you were chronically deficient in vitamin c you got scurvy if you had chronically deficient in b3 niacin you got pellagra which is a type of schizophrenia you go crazy psychotic um and so the question was how much vitamin c do you need to not get scurvy and and the answer is very little, you know, 10, 20, 30 milligram a day. Um, gradually, that got pushed up to 60 and then 80. And in Switzerland, it's 100, but not really on good science, because actually the amount that prevents scurvy is, you know, 30 milligram a day. Um, you know, same with niacin, it's 18 milligrams. So 18 milligrams for most people will stop them getting, you know, pellagra and, and being crazy. Uh, but years ago, I mean, one of my great teachers, Dr. Abram Hoffer, who was the head of scientific research and psychiatry in Canada, he wondered, because, uh, you know, he wondered if the people who are schizophrenic might actually just need more niacin. And, and he gave them not, not 18 milligrams, he gave them 3000 milligram in a placebo controlled trial. And they, they came out of their schizophrenia. Mm. So it's very much like the B12 story. Um, and the RDA is whatever, 1.5, 2 microgram. Um, I would say everyone, you know, certainly over 30 should supplement 10 microgram, which is what I have in my multi. But my homocysteine level is six, so it's fine. Uh, but if my homocysteine level is high, I may need to go to 500 microgram to get it to normal. You know, mm -hmm. so, so in a way, you could say the sicker you get, but you might not appear to be sick. You know, some people just need more. So the purpose of the RDA originally scientifically was we don't want a population full of scurvy. And by the way, I'll tell you, in the UK, we have um, half a million people over 65 have the vitamin C level that defines scurvy. Whoa. Right. It's quite so we're doing third world factor if we're yeah. speaking about things like that no i mean just as a sort of an aside what happened was you know you know 30 40 000 people died in care homes and uh, i thought well has vitamin c got anything to do with it you know and uh, so i started to look what is the level of um vitamin c uh, in care homes and what's the level required for normal blood levels um vitamin c by the way is um all animals make it and um, you know, so any animal that makes it can't die from COVID. End of story. The only animals who could die from COVID are, are the animals who don't make it. So all animals, you know, all animals are designed when sick, uh, inflamed or virally, whatever, to produce enough vitamin C to get their blood level to a certain level, is about sixty to eighty units. And always there'll be a little bit of spillage out in the urine. So if you cannot find vitamin C in your urine you are nowhere near your proper tissue level. So anyway, um, what's the evidence? Care homes, vitamin C. And the answer was one study, 1992, 40% of people in care homes have the scurvy level of vitamin C. All right. um, and then, so I went to the, the UK government's food standards agency, do a survey every two years. Of, you know, they take a sample of people. In fact, I just got a letter inviting me to be part of that sample. And they will measure your blood level of vitamin C. And um, so I looked at their data, and in the over 65s, um, uh, half a million, 4%, um, had a blood level of vitamin C that is in the scurvy zone. Right? So that's where that figure comes from. And then I said, are any of the survey 
people in care homes? They said, no, we exclude. We do not test anyone in care home. So we're, we're actually doing a study in Scotland with NHS Grampian and the University of Aberdeen, which is the simplest, cleverest little study. And what happens, we're going to care homes. And, uh, and by the way, this is a 25,000 pound study, uh, which people like you and I chipped in 50 quid, 100 quid, whatever, we raised 25,000. Mm. We go into the care home and uh, we, we, we have a urine stick, which you dip in your urine, it tells you if there's any vitamin C present. We give people a, an amount of vitamin C, dip in the urine, takes three hours to come through the urine, no vitamin C. Next day, a little more, dip, no vitamin C. Next day, a little more. And we keep going until mm. we get to the point of normalization. And then we can say, well, Mary needed 400 milligrams and Frank needed 600 milligrams and Joe needed, you know, whatever. And then we can go, okay, so the RDA, so to speak, you know, in a care home shouldn't be 60 milligrams, it should be 600. And mm -hmm. no one's ever done that. So, you know, what's the optimal intake of a nutrient? Whatever relieves the symptoms. In this case, with just whatever gets you to a baseline, right? You'd have to think, given that is such a simple study and such an easy relationship to establish between vitamin C and scurvy that's been known for you know more than 100 years, I think. It's like, surely then the health authorities pick up this and get very excited and go like, cool, well, we can get people out of that situation. And cool, these B vitamins are available. Are available. We can get people to, you know, slow, prevent, reverse potentially their dementia, Alzheimer's thing. We can have a more active, more involved, less costly population to service as they get towards an end. Right? And as the, as the populations are aging, we can see, oh, everyone's having to be income tax to a higher rate because yeah, yeah. there are more people that are aging and, and they're going to be sicker for longer. It's going to cost the state more money. When these simple studies illustrate these things so beautifully, as you're saying, are health authorities not like banging down your door to get you involved? Well, the problem is you're applying something very dangerous, and it's called logic and common sense. And, you know, if, if, if those listening haven't woken up to the fact that our entire medical and political system um, has been taken over by the interests of pharmaceutical medicine, um, including your doctor, who is educated in that respect, then you kind of haven't woken up. And a classic example of that is Alzheimer's, because the second part of the story I was telling you with Professor David Smith's research was that to actually build a brain cell, um, you have to attach the omega-3, and it's actually DHA, it's, it's omega-3 DHA, to a, a, a thing called a phospholipid, which is what you get in eggs and fish. And the attachment is done by methylation. So in essence, you can't build a brain without omega-3 and B vitamins for methylation and phospholipids. Phospholipids are the least important of those three, but you do need all three. So he then thought, hmm, let's go back to the blood tests we took at the start of our uh, participants and measure their blood omega-3 and see if that made any difference to the improvement. Remember, the average improvement was 52% less shrinkage. And what they found was that ones in the lowest third for omega-3, so this is just average people, the third with a lower amount, had no benefit at all from the B vitamins. Didn't work. But the third highest omega-3, which may not be optimal, but it's just the third who had the highest, 
they had 73% less brain shrinkage. They had nine times less shrinkage of the Alzheimer's areas of the brain. And on the measure of clinical dementia, the rating of clinical dementia rating or CDR, clinical dementia rating, 30% ended the year with no score at all, meaning that they would no longer be diagnosed with dementia. Wow. They can go back to their Sudoku and driving and everything else. So we learned something, and this was in 2017, which is omegas don't work without B-vitamins, B-vitamins don't work without omega. And then even though there are about nine trials now which confirm this, I'll just give you an example of two. So one very big study in Sweden gave omega-3, nice dose, 2.3 grams, so it was like two big capsules, no effect on uh, you know people with this mild cognitive impairment. Shame, good study, you know, placebo omega-3. So they went back to their blood levels, and this time they didn't look at, they looked at the B vitamin status from the homocysteine. Mm -hmm. And they found that those with the homocysteine below 11, that's the level where brain shrinkage occurs, had a massive benefit from the omega-3. But those in the top third of homocysteine, Mm -hmm. so we could say lack of B vitamins, omegas didn't work. So they went from what appeared to be a negative result overall to understanding, aha, omega-3s can't work if you've got raised homocysteine. It just won't work. And then another study, which had got a small effect on the B vitamins, it was B vitamins versus placebo. It got an effect, but it wasn't massive. They went back to their blood levels of omega-3, and they found exactly the same thing. The third with the lowest omega-3 had no benefit, and the third with the highest omega-3 had massive benefit. So just to contextualize this, we are now down to 73% less brain shrinkage in a year, which brings it down to the level of people who have no cognitive decline at all. So you can say you've eliminated the accelerated brain shrinkage and 30% end the year year with no clinical dementia rating at all. Now let's jump um, to the latest Alzheimer's drug, um, Donanamab. And the one before it, lacanamab, and the one before it, aducanamab. So first of all, understand what these drugs are. They are anti-amyloid injections, antibody injections. So it's a bit like a vaccine. So what happens is you inject this stuff every month, and uh, it hunts for these things called amyloid plaques and attacks them. And do they? their, their mechanism is to reduce the amyloid plaque. Do they work in that respect? Yes, they reduce the plaque. There have been 30 studies of these drugs that reduce the plaque, but have no effect on cognition, right? (laughs) Okay, so so they do reduce the plaque, but it doesn't cure the disease, right? So let's sort of look at these last three drugs. To what extent have they reduced brain shrinkage? And the answer is between 1% and 4%. So we're talking 73% with the B vitamins omega, mm. so 1 and 4%. But actually, the latest meta-analysis of all these drug trials showed that they didn't actually decrease the rate of brain shrinkage. They increased it. So Whoa. there's a little bit of debate going on there, right? Mm. But then what about the clinical dementia rating? And uh, if you read the... And what happens now? I mean, the, you know, people... It used to be so that you had to publish your studies in a peer-reviewed journal. What happens now is you get the press release. This latest one was from Eli Lilly. Um, 
no study published. It probably will be published in about three weeks, but it's not been published. So everything you're reading in the paper is from a press release written by the company who make the drug. Wow. And just like I was telling you with the um, APOE4 difference, it says 30% improvement of the drug mm -hmm. versus placebo. What they actually mean is that those on the placebo over the period of the trial got a lot worse. And those on the drug got a little less worse, 30% less worse. Right? Wow. And the clinical dementia rating is an 18-point scale. And uh, remember, I've already said that 30% on the B vitamins with the megas ended up zero. And in the first drug, Aducanumab, I think they got 0.39 of a point difference, so less than half <laughs> an 18-point scale. And the second drug got 0.45. Um, and this last drug got 0.49. So we're less than half a point difference. Is that of any clinical significance at all? Statistically, it's significant. And the answer is no. It's below the level that any patient, carer, partner, or doctor would notice. Mm. But it is technically a statistically significant effect. And then what happened in this last drug trial, two people died because of the drug and a third died probably under investigation. And in the previous trial, two people died under investigation. So we've got five investigated deaths, right? Then what about side effects? Because by the way, the side effects of the B vitamins, the omega-3 is you get less heart disease and diabetes and you, you know, you feel happier and your joints. I hope don't... they write them on the box. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so what happened? And, and here, we're, I'm only going on the press release of the drug company. We haven't even had the study. And they said that 24% got brain bleeding, right? And 24% got um, brain swelling. And we don't know, you can't assume, therefore, that 50%, because we don't know if some may get swelling and bleeding. Mm -hmm. And of course, swelling and bleeding is, you know, what can kill people. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're looking at something where at least a third of people on the drug are going to have a serious something occur. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a, a small number are going to die. The effect is below that of clinical significance. And the, the papers are saying, this is the beginning of the end. Mm. Certainly was the end for those five people who died. Yeah. The drug are between 10 and, 10 and 30,000 euro a year. But then because of these terrible risks of bleeding and swelling, you're going to have to do a brain scan with every treatment just to go, you know, they got a problem, you know, wow. that costs thousands. So now you're taking old people with memory problems, giving them all this intervention for a vast sum of money to get an effect. Uh, you know, remember, with two to four percent brain shrinkage versus 73 percent, you know, to get an effect that is a fraction of what we already know from only two out of the eight prevention factors. Uh, we, do they talk about the market potential for the drug in the press release? Um, 
No, but basically there's 11 million people out there and, and the terrible truth. Uh, and, you know, we wonder uh, is, you know, my father-in-law, you know, has dementia. And, you know, he said to me, is there a drug for it? You know, and if the doctor said, uh, you know, yeah, there's a drug, you know, he'd do it. He, he's actually broke. But if he had 10,000 pounds, they'll be queuing up for it, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, lambs to the slaughter, I would say. It's unethical to continue down this line. But for example, we had a guy, he's called Nodge, Alan, that's his nickname, Nodge, and his wife, Dorothy. He was diagnosed in December with um, mixed dementia, both Alzheimer's and vascular dementia. He kept being found in different rooms in the house because he couldn't find the loo at night in his house. He couldn't conceive of tomorrow. Um, he was an avid gardener. There's no way that he could work out to plan his garden. A computer programmer, he was having trouble just turning his computer on or off. He couldn't both eat and talk. Um, you know, they gave him his diagnosis and said, join a dementia group. And uh, he went on, or rather his wife, went on our foodforthebrain.org, did the cognitive function test, fill in the questionnaire that follows it, well, the dementia risk index. It showed him exactly where his risks were. He was taking omega-3, didn't realize needed the B vitamins, so started taking omega-3 and B vitamins. So that's covered. Um, he's uh, carbohydrates and sugar is a big issue. So five days a month, he went ketogenic, very low carb, high fat. He started to have every day a couple of tablespoons of what we call it's an MCT oil or C8 oil. It's a type of fat. It's a little bit of it in coconut, which is what helps make ketones. He instantly noticed improvement whenever he was ketogenic. When he got uh, sometimes invited to dinner by friends and they had you know sweets, carbohydrate, desserts, whatever, instantly got worse. So now he's covering the third thing, which is the blood sugar. Uh, upped his intake of fruit and veg. They went to bed an hour earlier because getting enough sleep is important. Um, had him join various groups. He's now Morris dancing. Yeah. He's back on his computer writing emails. He's planned his whole spring garden, got yeah. that going. Um, so this is a man diagnosed with Alzheimer's and vascular dementia in December. And I'm telling you how he is in March. Yeah. So when he goes back for his you know, checkup, they said, we want you to go on a drug trial, right? And they said, well, who's funding it? I said, oh, someone very important, but we can't tell you. And, um, and then they said, and what if he dies or has a significant adverse reaction? Is there any compensation? I said, no. And he said, well, what about all the amazing research on B vitamins and omegas? Oh, they don't do anything. Mm. So I think it is unethical. And this is what's happening right now. Older people are being encouraged to go on these drug trials. Um, and I think it's unethical. Uh, we know people will die. We know 30% will have significant adverse reactions. We have no evidence that they're going to do anything in the scale of what we've already got with B vitamins and omegas. And then if you add in the lowering your blood sugar, you know, your, your blood sugar, and you add in and, and then here's a terribly important thing. In a sense, when we talk about the B vitamins, the omegas, and even the sugar, we're talking about the structure of the brain, 
Mm. Um, and then we're talking about its function. So the fuel, you know, is either sugar or ketones. And what happens is the sugar engine in our brain cells gets messed up. Mm. So ironically, they're sort of starving of fuel. It's to do with insulin resistance, you know. But brain cells can also run on ketones. So if you give them this cleaner alternative fuel, it's like a hybrid car. Mm. So the petrol engine is all gunked, but you switch to electricity. Works fine. Come back to life. So this is all structure and function. And mm. I'll tell you, the um, um, there is a guy you may know, him, uh, a brilliant systems thinker called Fritjof Capra. And he wrote a book in the 70s called The Tao of Physics. And he's written a lot of books on systems medicine. And I have to be playing tennis with him when I was about 15 or 16 when he was writing the book. And he said to me, what is the difference, Patrick, between a living organism and an inanimate and an inanimate organism, like a bicycle and, and you? And he, he would say a bicycle, you both got bits, you both got parts. Um, the parts relate, you know, the wheel to the chain, the handlebars and so on, the parts relate. But the difference in an animate object is you've got this life, um, this activity flowing through it. So the next part of Alzheimer's, you've got to have the structure, B vitamins, omegas, et cetera. You've got to have the function, good fuel, uh, you know, ketones, low GL, low carbs, and good antioxidants because they mop up the exhaust fumes of burning the fuel. Um, and you then you've got to have utilization. You've got to have the flow of learning new things, dancing. Mm -hmm walking up a hill, your legs are working out, how do I balance everything that's going on? You've got to have that active mind, active body, you know, conversation like this, social interaction is challenging. You watch the telly, it's not necessarily challenging. So that banter, you know, that occurs. And so those are the three parts. And actually, there are now 30 risk factors for dementia. And every single one of them will fit into either structure or function or utilization. For example, we've just heard recently that um, if you're deaf and you have a hearing aid, it reduces your risk of dementia than if you don't. And if, you're, if you've got cataracts, mm -hmm. uh, it increases your risk of dementia. If you have cataract surgery, it reduces your risk of dementia. So not hearing and not seeing you know, so I wrote a thing, I'm a bit not politically incorrect, but it said, you know, if deaf, does deaf and blind make you dumb? Have you seen mm. Because yeah. you, you need the stimulation. You have the stimulation. And then the effect of all this stimulation, learning new things, and it's really good to fail. So, you know, being crap at playing the guitar, you know, and trying or learning, yeah. new, you know, is really good. You know, if you do things, you know, that you're so good at that actually there's no challenge, then, mm. you know, so you, at every point of age, retiring early increases the risk of dementia. You need yeah. to keep your mind. And then, you know, what does any animal do? You know, if you take your dog for a walk and they run around the place, what do they do afterwards? They go to sleep. Mm. So sleep is the recovery mode from activity. When you put all of those things together, we have no idea yet just how great prevention is, you know, because we've not. So what we're doing now at foodforthebrain.org, I mean, it's a major, you know, citizen science um, intervention is we are and we want to reach a million people. 
And every day on my phone, you know, we have 100 people, another 100 people and so on. But we want oh. to reach a million people. We've, we've tested over 400,000 people already, by the way. So we want anyone um, at any age to go on to foodforthebrain.org, do the test, which has two parts. One, test your actual cognitive functions, not a questionnaire. It's quite challenging. You just follow the instructions. The other is a questionnaire. And in July, we are introducing a pinprick blood test for homocysteine, omega-3, vitamin D, and your blood sugar, HbA1c. Mm -hmm. right? And we'd like people, you know, it's an option. It costs not too much. It's under 200 euro for the whole lot. Um, but we'd like people, you know, do the test, do the questionnaire, do the blood test, um, get involved. Uh, you are now part of our science group. Make some changes. Um, every six months, we'll retest you. And we want to track a million people um, over time making changes or not making changes mm -hmm. and see if, you know, reducing your risk improves your cognitive function and so on. But this is this is how it's the only way you you can do prevention in a multifactorial way. Mm -hmm. I think days of randomized controlled trials where you take one thing versus a placebo is kind of you know going to fade away as we move into big data, collecting yeah. a lot of information. But then how we analyze that data is terribly important. Yeah. Who controls that data is terribly important. Mm, so, that's a big old deal. Yeah, that's, that, that's, a, that's a huge conversation uh, to step into around, yeah, <laughs> control of data and access to data and privacy stuff, which is, you well, know, I, I think... It's quite easy. I mean, you know, to give you the context of what we're doing, first of all, you're, you know, if you do it, you then become a number. So any of your personal information is not available to anybody else who does any of the research. You know, mm, so okay, cool. That's good to hear. You are a male of a certain age, so it's completely yeah. compromised. So your, you know, your privacy is protected. You know, mm. yeah. I, I gave up my whoop strap uh, a year and a half, two years ago. Mm. Found it very useful, albeit I know it's not like absolute levels, but good data for HRV and that sort of stuff to give kind of relative ideas. But um, but I heard some of the places where that data might be being shared. Likewise, when I did a genetic test a few years ago as well, and it's like, I think the 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 choices of how we like this is this is the age of like taking ownership of our health taking ownership of our data taking ownership of recognizing that we have a value in these things as a unit we have a value as a human we have a value and i think the the things you you you've explained so beautifully is the this this contrast between passivity which is essentially a fast track to death and activity or like ownership or the sense that like it's all out there for us. All we have to do is go and reach and look for the things. And even the looking for them stimulates the brain, stimulates the life. Yeah. But it's that achievement of understanding more about our biology that's going to ultimately bring around the change, not this passive reliance on external sources or factors for either information or drugs and interventions and that sort of stuff. And I think, yeah, that's, that, that's a, a huge uh scene change for people to to, to take on and i think like it, it makes so much sense because we can see the things that are on the rise in our culture which are all about passive engagement in society we can see what's happened in the last three years in terms of our our lack of engagement with each other in community we can see the sort of decline that that's brought about we can see the issues with children with adhd with all these sorts of things all of this stuff starts to make a lot of sense when you put it all together doesn't it yeah, I mean, and then the other side of this uh, is that actually when you do it all, mm. I mean, 
if I go back to 18 and I arrive at university, I'm studying psychology, and then I discover some things about nutrition, and uh, they didn't have supplements in the UK. I, I imported them for myself from America and changed my diet and did you know radical things based on sort of cutting edge science. And, you know, I lost a stone in weight, my face, which looked like a little landscape acne, you know, cleared up. I, I was waking up alert. I'd never had that before. You know, I used to have to, you know, go to the kettle, a strong cup of tea, coffee, light up a cigarette. You know, I was alert. Uh, you know, I changed. And then you go, my God, you know, you can feel like this. So what's really important to know is that if you do go down this path of making these changes, um, you will very quickly, if you do them all, um, you know, you take the boons and the omegas, not just one, uh, your energy will shoot up, your mind gets clearer, you feel happier. And I don't emphasize exercise on the first line because I find that a lot of people say, oh, I'm too tired. But if you get nutrition right, your energy goes up. And when energy gets up, you go, what am I going to do? And then you start exercising because you've got all this... And then the exercise feeds back. And before long, you're into a new paradigm that you'd be very hard to get out of. You know, once you've tested, you know, optimal health, you, you just can't. I mean, yeah. I, I, I sort of set myself, you know, a day a year to eat junk food. And sometimes I'm involved in studies where I have to kind of go in that direction. And it's just so difficult you know, you eat you eat the stuff that you were eating and you instantly notice, you know, how it makes you feel. And you go, I don't want to feel like this, you know? So the point is, you can join this health club. You know, mm -hmm. you cross the line. It's not that difficult to do. And once you're there, it's just like learning to ride a bicycle. You know, mm -hmm. one day at some point, you have this new distinction called balance. And once you've got that distinction called balance, you can not even ride a bicycle for 30 years. You get on a bicycle, you've got that new distinction. So when you cross into this new distinction called health, you won't go back. Yeah. And the point is, you, you might have just reduced your dementia risk, but, you know, you've re I mean, you've reduced your cancer risk, your heart disease. I mean, I'll tell you just you know, a little bit about cancer because I just finished interviewing. I have a podcast called Patrick Podbeam. You've got a podcast. Oh. Yeah. And uh, we just interviewed one of the geniuses in cancer, Professor Thomas Seafried. And even though he completely unpacks the whole story about genes and everything else, so it's worth, you go, why am I hearing all this? Very good science, but he does it to be absolutely thorough. But the bottom line is very simply this. There isn't a single cancer cell anywhere in any body, in any person that hasn't switched its metabolism mm. to what's called fermenting sugar. So sort of running without oxygen. So it's a different, it's a survival mode. And all cancer cells without exception can only feed on sugar, glucose, or an amino acid called glutamine. Mm. And whichever cancer in anywhere, in anybody, in any person, if you starve the cancer cells of glucose, sugar, which you can do, um, because if you push your body towards ketosis, you can run on ketones if you're not having glucose. You go into a low-carb, high-fat type diet, or you fast, or you do a whatever. I have a book called The Five-Day Diet, which is that as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, you can't starve your body of glutamine because it's used for a lot of different functions. Mm -hmm. There is a couple of drugs that actually block cancer cells' mm -hmm. ability to use glutamine. 
And if you do these two things, cancer cells can't survive. Mm. Bottom line. And they die off. Mm. And then uh, he calls this press and pulse. You're basically weakening, 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 but a few still survive. And then it turns out that intravenous vitamin C, uh, which is a very safe medicine, um, that cancer cells accumulate a little bit more iron than other cells. And high-dose intravenous vitamin C, not oral, high-dose intravenous vitamin C, oxidizes the cancer cells, rusts the cancer cells, and the mm -hmm. last few die off. That's fascinating. You know, he spends an hour to unpack that in every single detail. So basically, mm -hmm. cancer isn't genetic. Mm -hmm. Alzheimer's isn't genetic. It's driven by the same kind of things. So if you do our cognitive function test and you follow the instructions and you start to change your diet, you're now in a situation, you know, where you won't have diabetes, you won't have heart disease, you won't have cancer, you won't have Alzheimer's, you know. And, and then as I, you know, I was traveling in India, working on a mobile hospital and a sadhu comes up to me, he said, you health food freak, you're going to look so silly when it comes to your time to die, you'll have nothing to die from. <laughs> you know that's a good complaint <laughs> and then my lovely friend dr abram hoffer you know he he um stopped seeing psychiatric pain he treated six thousand schizophrenic patients successfully his definition of cure by the way was free of symptoms able to socialize with family and friends and paying income tax right yeah and uh you know two weeks before his death he stopped seeing patients Four week, four days before his death, he said, I'm not feeling very well. Two days before his death, he went to hospital. He didn't have any diseases as such. And in the last 48 hours, his organs just started to shut down and he died without medication, without pain. Yeah. That's what we can all do. I think we'll call this podcast Way to Go. <laughs> uh, and so, Patrick, if people are listening and they're like, okay, I'm convinced this sounds like a really good way to prevent Alzheimer's. So, so people aren't also... convinced? Anyway, go on. Well, the, that's the second question. Yeah. Um, and actually, I, I, I can just achieve overall better health and mm. prevent cancer, all these kind of things. Yeah. What's the first step? They do your tests, they buy a book, They what's the steps and how much roughly would it cost people to invest in the information that they need to actually do this correctly? I will tell you that exactly now. First, we are doing a no-dig garden here to grow food optimally. The compost, the compost has just arrived. On the concrete one, furthest down the hill where, they, where it's highest, right? <laughs> and the tractor can get in and pick it up, okay. all right? All right, little compost delivery. So your question is, was it about cancer and what do you do? Or no. every, the test? It was, it was just if people are wanting to take on this program that you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. All, you, all you do is terribly simple. Go to foodforthebrain.org, foodforthebrain.org. It says cognitive function test. Click the button, follow the instructions. Do the, the, the test and the questionnaire is going to take you about 20 minutes. You can't do the test on your phone. The screen is too small, iPad or bigger. So just set aside some time, turn your phone off and do it. It will then work out exactly what your risk is and where your risk is. So you'll see it. It's all terribly straightforward. 
And uh, the best thing to do then, this is an option because you get a certain amount of information. If you then sign up to our program, Brain Upgrade program is called Cognition. Click on Cognition, join Cognition. It's five pounds a month for six months or 50 pounds a year. So that's the total commitment to your health, 50 quid in the year. Um, then what happens is you're shown your two weakest areas. So, you know, maybe it's brain fats and active body. And you go, hmm, I know I'm a lazy sob. I don't really want to work on that. I'll go for brain fats, right, <laughs> uh, which is in the red. Then what happens is every other day, again, email, you'll get what we call push notifications, a little text on your phone. You'll be invited to a Zoom group. You'll be asked to read something, watch something, um, do something, and you'll just be nudged along the way. And every now and again, there'll be a text to say, you know, did you have any oily fish today or whatever it happens to be. Mm -hmm. And you get to the end of the month um, and you then redo just the questions relating to that section. And you go, oh, great. My brain fats have gone from red to green, right? It then shows you your next two week, week ones, active body and uh, sleep and calm. So it's going to keep showing you the one you don't want to work on until you eventually do it, <laughs> you know, um, et cetera. And you just keep working through that okay. process. And then at the end of six months, uh, we'll get you to redo the cognitive function test because you, you need, you know, if you did it every day, you would learn you know, so you need six months. And also, you know, it, we're talking about subtle changes here. We want young people to do this as well. Mm -hmm. All of these tests are, are about, you know, what they're there to find out whether you do or don't have a problem. But basically, there's three levels of health. You know, there's, um, um, there's uh, vertically well, there's um, vertically ill, and there's horizontally ill. <laughs> you only go to your doctor when you become horizontally ill and the horizontally ill come from the vertically ill right and your doctor's job is to get you back to the vertically ill you know <laughs> and our job is to get you to vertically well so we want to know um you know we want to know what real health means it's a bit like when i say when you're older your stomach acid level drops well does it have to you know, so studies don't look at super healthy people. They look at average people, average in average poor health. You know, those who do have a disease and those who don't have a disease, but not being diabetic doesn't mean you're healthy. Mm, you're probably physically yeah. ill. So everyone can do this and everyone will learn something from it. And it's going, you'll see your areas and they're just the same. If you sort out active mind, active body, sleep and calm. So stress is a factor, healthy gut, antioxidants, polyphenols, fruit and veg, brain fats, mm. blood sugar, B vitamins. You know, it's impossible to be sick. Yeah. The stuff your oncologist and your geriatrician is not going to teach you, you will find here. And most of it's basically cheap or free. That's the thing, like by and large. Yeah. And the thing is, it's all logical it's all science-based so to give you a simple example you know intravenous vitamin c is a pro-oxidant it oxidizes cancer cells and kills them so you know the classic situation you're offered a chemotherapy and you say well what about intravenous vitamin c oh whatever you know vitamins don't work and and then you say well how does the chemo drug you're giving me work and the answer is oh it oxidizes the cancer cell we go well that's very interesting because intravenous vitamin c 
oxidizes the cancer cell. Mm. So then you look up and we have a thing called PubMed where you can look at everything. And um, the question is, what happens if you give both intravenous vitamin C and this chemo drug? And usually there's a study that says, well, it's a strange thing. Um, the drug works better. The adverse effects are much less. So mm. why was it you said we shouldn't look at intravenous femency exactly? The mind boggles. We better leave it at that. Thank you so much. There's like lots of answers, but also loads more questions. <laughs> but thank you so much for, for sharing your insights and your knowledge and your wisdom. And thank you for all the work you're doing as well, because it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a big uh, give back. I hate the term, but it's a, but it's a big uh, generous effort that you're making for the world. Um, and foodforthebrain.org is something we haven't done our test We're yet. We're going to do actually. it now. Yeah, you got to do it. You got to do it. And I mean, the bottom line is you can add life to your years and years to your life. Yeah, it's hang on. Difficult. Yeah, nice. Patrick Alfred, thank you very, very much. Just remains to say uh, thank you very much to our sponsors, us. We have a great organic clothing brand called Wandering Into Wellness. Come and get it on the wanderingintowellnessproject.com. Nearly said the wrong one there. Um, and yeah, so, and, and come and work with us directly. We'll be able to feed you the sort of information Patrick talks about. And you know where we are. And yeah, there'll be lots more content like this. And if you have any more questions for Patrick, feed them to us. We'll feed them to him. And if we can get any specific information back from him, we will tell you what it is. Thanks, Patrick. Slauncha. <laughs> Slauncha. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha.